people just like you have taken the brave step to do this thing we call work differently. They tell their self-unlimited story to inspire and encourage you. Another story begins now. Today, I get to have a fascinating conversation with my good friend, Anita Pizag. We're going to be talking about smart choices. Welcome, Anita. Hi, Helen. Thank you for having me here. I'm so pleased that we can talk about this because you've just written a book called 35 Smart Choices. And so I'd like to get some insight from you for people who are listening a little bit about, well, why you came to write this book. And then I've got a couple of challenges myself that you might help me with that might be interesting to people. So let's kick off with why write this book? What, what was going on in the world that you observed that maybe wasn't being addressed? And how did you come up with the number 35? Let me start with the number 35. That's probably an easier question. I had 50 or 60 ideas right. on my list. Ideas, meaning questions that I ask myself every day or almost every day about how I could work better. And questions that people around me asking me or what I understand they are asking themselves about how they could work better. And uh, my intention with the book was to help people give answers to these questions that would guide their daily decisions about when, where, and how they work. And I'm just flipping through my book as we speak, and it's so fresh that I actually sometimes use it as a cheat sheet. Uh, a few of the questions that I answer, how can I maximize my mental energy? What should I do during my break time? How should we run meetings to ensure problems are actually solved? Where should we meet? And so on. So you understand I could go on and on with these questions. There are literally hundreds of them. I found 35 were not a number that I decided up front. These were the top questions that emerged during the research and writing process as the ones that I feel that make the greatest difference. Mm. to people's lives and also the ones which provide the most interesting and the not always most intuitive answer to people's question that that they might not be able to easily find elsewhere. And of course you wrote this during the pandemic so how much has the pandemic had an influence on the kinds of selection of items that you would put in the 35? Remote work started out as a single choice. How can I work better remotely? It turned into the largest section of the book with six choices. It's probably one fourth of the book's content in terms of page count. And uh, I needed to write these sections obviously after COVID started because the amount of information that uh, emerged during the last couple of years is enormous information in terms of research, people sharing their experiences, finding out more about the challenges of remote work. During all the conversations that happened, there was an enormous amount of knowledge to make sense of to structure and turn it into something coherent and digestible and relevant. 
I've read your book and one of the strengths that I think you bring to it is that you are doing that research. You are drawing from hardcore academic evidence-based research while also bringing in anecdotal stuff and things from your evidence and even stories. And I was just in the garden at the weekend working particularly hard thinking I need to take a break and then I remembered there was a story in Anita's book about how you might remember this one about how you were going hiking and how with the hiking that the hiking person uh, had you take a break at, at, I think it was sort of like well, maybe an hour of walking and the five minute break and you were kind of like no no I can push through and keep going on but this person had said no 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 the more that you take these breaks the more you will have the energy to get through to the long part. So I just wanted to let you know, I don't think I've shared this with you yet, but that story sticks in my mind and reminds me about that choice of taking more breaks. That was a fascinating experience. Indeed, it's still very fresh in my memory in the Argentinian Andes. Just my guide and myself, I had no idea that there will not be a group. So all the eyes were on me, which was somewhat, I don't know, I feel I felt a little bit exposed. And I don't think that I was super fit at that time. I was fitish, but I was blown away when we were at the summit. And my guy told me, that's it. There is nowhere further to go. We've done that 1,000 meter elevation hike in an hour, and it was a breeze. It definitely came through. And, and so I really value that you have got that mix of the here's some stuff that comes from research and research from different fields, as well as here is a personal story and here's some practical advice. I genuinely value research, but in the book, I advise people to take research as a guidance rather than as an instruction, because what research says that a certain strategy works for maybe 80 or 90 percent of the population in a positive way what about the rest and i have certain aspects of my work style which doesn't align with research and that's perfectly fine because we don't want to operate all the same way that would be dull we couldn't really bring our unique talent into this world if everybody was fitting into the same mold and I love that idea, and that's very much part of a self-unlimited idea in terms of there is much information out there. However, your context could be different than the person who's giving it or that the person is actually seeing. And so it's about making the choices that are right for your workscape in terms of the environment that you're in, but also where you're at in your life, because that person might be a parent with children and you're not. And so their information is colored in terms of that other contextual information going on. Absolutely. And just returning to your previous question about the pandemic, there was another aspect of the pandemic that influenced my writing. I wrote a large part of the manuscript during the lockdown in Melbourne. And when I reviewed the manuscript later on after the lockdown ended, I was horrified to see what poor writing that was. And I did not realize it during those months. And I needed to rewrite those wow. significantly. That was also a learning experience for me about my own work style and how my environment and my emotional state impacts my performance sometimes in ways that I can't even judge myself while I'm in that headspace. So that twisted a fair bit about what I understand about my work style, how I judge the quality of my work, and what we can do about this. I revisited the chapter again about how important it is for us to be in the right mental state to do great work. 
you have a tagline on the front of the book, bring out the best in yourself and your team through powerful decisions about when, where, and how you work. Has this been an interest for you for a long time, or is this something that's emerged? It has been an interest for me for quite a long time, and it, it, it interestingly brings back to your very first question that I haven't fully answered yet about why I have written this book. I was a full-time employee till around 10 years ago, and then I started to work on my first book. I left my corporate job to start my business, and this was the first time in my life when I did not have to follow a strict structure around when, where, and I worked. And I experimented instinctively. I worked in strange places. I had a wonderful place that I revisited many times since in South Australia, a little town called Port Elliot Beach House. And I stayed there at times for several weeks and on one occasion for over two months, just working on my book and working on projects as well. It was right on the beach. It's a wonderful environment. Uh, very historical as well. It's a quiet little, very authentic town. I went on beach walks. I went swimming. So I went out for lunch. I was writing in my room, in the lunch room, on a bench overlooking the sea, on the balcony overlooking a park. Lovely places, but I noticed a certain pattern emerged in terms of when, where, and high work. And I find myself following a specific routine which really helped me being effective and feeling that I had a very productive day, but also having a wonderful work-life balance at the same time. And suddenly work didn't feel like a chore while I saw the results growing and growing. So this was perhaps the first time when I became conscious how important it is to be able to make the right choices. Having those right choices available for us uh, in the first place and knowing how to make the right choices once those choices are available and when I wrote this book I made sure that there are choices in there that everybody can use even if they work in a role that seems very restrictive in terms of you have to be in the office from nine to five you have to use this computer you have to use this software and this is your lunch break even those people should be able to find a handful of options that they will be able to take advantage of and fine tune how they approach work in a way that makes them happier and also more effective. Something that I think is worth mentioning is that you have an architecture background. That was the kind of work that you were doing. Am I right? Was architecture? Yes, that's correct. And so your first book, remind me the title, it was Creating Something Workplaces. Create a thriving workspace. That's right. Create a thriving workspace. So I think you brought to it very much a strong sense of place and the role that place and environment could have over the work and your feeling of the work and inhabiting. And what I see is with this book, it's evolving more to the, okay, well, place has a, a role to play, but how are you going to be in that place? What's the decisions and choices you're going to make about the inhabiting of that place. Space is a very important part of my experience, both professionally and personally. And also headspace is very important for me. Now, one thing that's very important to understand about this book 
that I'm not telling people what to work on. It's not a traditional productivity book. It's not a personality profiling book. It's not about time management and how to have inbox zero. It's about creating the right external conditions to nurture the right internal conditions for you to be in that headspace. Oh, I love then that. Then you can create magic. Yeah. It, it's it's really getting the external right when you just have that state of flow, that moment of truth, that light bulb moment that will create paradigm shifts in your work. Wonderful. So the external conditions that will enable that internal conditions in work. Wonderful. Exactly. So I have a couple of challenges I'd like to throw at you and let's see what advice you might be able to give me. So my first challenge, and these are all genuine ones that happen for me. So when I find that I'm in a open plan workspace and there are other people who want to listen to music, I don't. I'm one of those people when people say, oh, I love studying with music in the background. And maybe it's something about the fact that I am, am a musician. So when I hear music, my mind is actually distracted. It's not comforted. It's extra sensory information. So I dislike that. But also, too, the kinds of music they want to listen to or even maybe just chat about just feels to me like that's a nuisance. It's, it's not even pleasurable. So what's your thoughts about being in a shared space with other people who want to listen to music, how could I consider my choices or what, what, what could I do? Well, well, in an ideal world, when you work in a workplace, you have a choice around whether you go there or not in the first place. And that space itself should offer the choice whether you can work in a quiet environment or in a noisy and buzzing space. So if you don't have the choice to work from home, then you really need to focus deeply on something in perfect silence. And you have to go to an office. That can be a challenge, especially if that office doesn't offer that opportunity for you to be in a quiet space. Another question is whether you have the right relationship and the right amount of influence in that space to have a chat with those people about contain the noise in a certain corner and keep the other noise, other corner quiet for people who need to head down work. And I'm pretty sure that you are not the only person in that space who has this challenge. The last result is using noise cancelling headphones. And if they don't create the perfect silence for you, then you can perhaps put on your choice of music that's not very distracting but can mask out external noises so quite a few options there to consider great indeed thank you okay on to my next challenge what if i'm wanting to work asynchronously with people so rather than having to meet together at the same time that we could just send messages and it might be uh through sms on phone or it could be through email or many of these other platforms that exist there's an element where I, messages, when I say asynchronous, it's that they're allowed to come in and I don't have to answer them straight away, that I could turn off the notification. So it's not like I'm constantly being annoyed by them. This is one of those questions where it really helps for us to understand, for example, what sort of issues should be discussed synchronously or collaboratively. 
and what sort of issues can be easily resolved, for example, via email or texting? And this is one of those questions that my book offers some answers to. I will try to summarize it very briefly. If it's a sort of work when you explore a complex idea together with your colleagues, then you need to be highly creative, imaginative, then you need to bring a lot of your personalities into a conversation or when you are discussing something controversial, perhaps there is a, a conflict between you. It's shown by research and it's also my personal experience that these conversations are much more effective, ideally face-to-face, -face, but if you can't meet people face-to-face, -face, that instant feedback that you can give each other to eliminate misunderstandings and to bring out the best versions of yourself, that really helps. Certain conversations are perfectly fine in an asynchronous manner, status updates, questions where the answers can wait. So in your situation, what I would suggest, sit down with your, whether it's clients, team members, colleagues, ask them about generally their preferred work style, how they can focus best, how they can perform their best work. But in general, a good solution could be to allocate a part of the day when everybody does their work by themselves. That's when you do your focused work. That's what is often referred to as deep work. And when you really don't want to be interrupted and, and allocate another part of your day for being open to being contacted and being responsive immediately. Certain creative tasks actually could even benefit from interruption when you want to make sure that you are not too much in your logical mind, when you want to expand your thinking, then a bit of interruption can even trigger something new. Oh, thinking about interruptions positively. That could happen, but only if there is a time and space for everything. Yeah, yeah. Great, thank you. Okay, so challenge number three, I'm not wanting to work out loud um, and for those people who haven't heard the notion of working out loud, that's the idea that you would show your work before it's finished. And it might be in a draft form or it might be just the pieces you're starting to pull together. And I think of that as a time when I'm developing something. And I, I mean the word developing here almost like that old notion of photography when a photograph's being developed and it's moving through different stages through the chemical process of being revealed. So there's a kind of an emergent nature. And one of the things that frustrates me is this notion by putting it out there, people who can look at it, who won't have the same knowledge base as me to maybe appreciate what I'm actually doing or what kind of trajectory it's on and that something might be in a very emergent, malleable nature that it might head in a different direction. And I'm just not ready for that level of critique. So what's your thoughts about this notion of working out loud and whether it's a good thing to do or not? I can 100% relate to your challenge. In some instances, it's a good thing. For example, when people work from home and they don't have too much close relationship with their colleagues, working out loud can give people a sense of progress, a sense of recognition, contribution, knowing that what they do is meaningful. But getting back to the core of your questions is how to deal with the fact that you feel it's not ready. And I even mentioned it in my book. I don't always feel comfortable showing my messy draft to anyone 
there are so many loose ends and with lots of ideas still only in my head it's nearly impossible to explain what the final outcome will look like yeah that, that, that describes well so it's so if it's generally your project you can share as little as as you want if it's a collaborative project that becomes a little bit trickier but here is how i would go about this start sharing the core idea that inspired you to do this project in the first place what makes it different what's exciting about it what intersection have you found that you are working at that hasn't done before what will be the benefit that this project will provide what problem you are solving try to put this in a napkin sketch format and a napkin sketch is inherently messy and incomplete and in many ways wrong people won't critic a napkin sketch the same way as they would critic a 20-page document. I'm imagining this is yes. an architectural aspect in there for you too, that literally you might have drawn the plans for a building or a house on the back of a napkin compared to those very specific draftsman type plans. Yes, it could be that as well. Having said that, my most memorable example when something like this happened, when I was writing my first book, Create a Thriving Workspace, and that being the first book when I was working on a manuscript. I've written 50,000 words. That was a very boring book. It, it turned out to be an incredibly dull book that I, I personally wouldn't be able to read myself. So I thought, we have to change something here. And I didn't completely scrap the content. What I did, I completely restructured the content. So instance, instead of a book that would talk about how to design a great office, start with the research, the foundations, the furniture, the walls, the financial aspect of the design. I completely flipped the whole thing around and I started to focus on the benefits. How to design an office that supports the vision and purpose and brand of the business that supports great communication, productive work, health and well-being an engaging culture and ongoing change. Everything else was restructured around that. So it, the whole idea behind my book and behind that massive project of rewriting it that took me years can be summarized in seven words and can be summarized in a simple concept. I didn't structure the content based on what to do when you design, need to design a great office. I, I structured the content around what benefits you will achieve. If you are able to distill down the core of your work into something as simple as that, people will instantly have a buy-in and they will be forgiving if the rest is, is still loose and messy. Well, I think that actually shows part of that kind of emergent creative process because sometimes people getting to that benefits is actually part of that crystallizing, working through tangling with whatever you're working with process. And that often the starting point is more about, as you said, like, you know, what is the research? There's a kind of a linear, logical, it seems a logical starting place. And you start through all of those steps. And then there's a point where you can sit back and look, and go, oh, hang on, I'm going to redo all of that. And that's where maybe it's not quite fear, but a kind of consideration that 
I'm doing that work and the point that I want to show it is not the point in that, well, I'm just doing that research or those first few steps. It's when I get to that point where I've reached a point like, ah, oh, actually, I'm changing my mind and flipping this on its head and taking a different direction on this. Because if there's a point where I was showing somebody the work where I was following, you know, do the research, you know, as you were saying, from a sort of a architectural design point of view, those steps you would be going through, then people could start to validate me around that, which would kind of lock me into, oh, well, this must be good, rather than letting me think that's what I had to do to kind of get it out of the way because that's just where my mind was logically going. And then I could put that aside and look at it fresh and anew. And I think sometimes people, by this is often this notion of needing to ship or get it out there, but by putting it out there, it starts to have a more of a concrete form and a more solid form. And unfortunately, at that point, it becomes far more difficult to break it or destroy it or cull it or find the essence of something. That, that, that's absolutely spot on. And it's really interesting because sometimes to create the best work we possibly can, we need to be comfortable in that uh, paradoxically very uncomfortable headspace. And you have something that's sort of complete, but something triggers you to pull it apart and start it again. You are not sure whether where it's heading. You have absolutely no idea what the final outcome will look like. You're not even sure if you're doing the right thing but you feel compelled for me that i wouldn't say it's an inner voice but i just have to do it without being able to explain why and i'm even feeling silly because oh my god i'm moving backwards now why am i doing this i have to say that every single time in my work life when i did that with a significant project and i it was like almost ready i wasn't fully satisfied with that and i reworked always achieve the result well beyond my imagination. Yeah, for me, there's an element, whether it's writing, composing, kind of conceptualizing something, that often it's a point that I'm just getting out of my head and kind of using it by taking it out of my head that I can look at it in a different form or I can crystallize it. And sometimes that it's a point where having got it out of my head, it's like, well, that's all that needed to happen. It did not have to go out into the world, did not need to be shared with anybody, did not actually need to solve a problem. It was more a case of I needed that process of crystallizing and explicating it just to kind of think, you know, where I'm at. And as a consequence, because I write articles and blogs, I actually have probably 30 half written blogs sitting in my system. And sometimes I go back to them and think, yeah, no. No, this, that doesn't need to go any further. It was more just I was working out and working through my thoughts and writing it down just happened to be the way to do it. And I'm glad I never showed it to anybody because that could have opened up to either like, yeah, yeah, you should push through this or, you know, you've not covered these things. And you said um, you weren't going to use the word inner voice. For me, sometimes there is a kind of inner voice where it's kind of like, now, why were you doing this? And it's not a judging thing. It's kind of like, were you just doing this to get this out of your head? In which case, job done pat yourself on the back, walk away. Or it's like, actually, do I feel kind of compelled that this might make a difference in somebody's life? At which point I might start to think, yeah, is there a person I can think of that this is actually going to solve a problem for? Because sometimes the things that are coming up with me, they're not coming from the point of view of, oh, I saw a problem to solve. Now let me get down to problem solving. It was more about I have something to express. I have no idea whether it will be useful or solve a problem. And I don't want that level of critique 
being brought out. No, say, tell me, Helen, this thing that you're doing, who's it going to solve a problem for? And I'm like, I'm, I'm not sure. It, it, I just, maybe it's a kind of an inventive mindset that I have and maybe other people don't have the same challenge I do. I, I'm sure you are not alone with this. As I mentioned, I'm 100% with you. Yes. Well, maybe we can, yeah. for those of the people who are listening, if you're of the inventor, creative kind of mindset, this possibly resonates with you. And if it doesn't, that's okay, because that's part of the self-unlimited idea that pick up what resonates for you and where you can apply it. And for the rest, just give it a pass. True. My last challenge. Now, it's interesting. I was referring here about articles and composition. There are times, particularly with Self Unlimited, but in other works and situations that I'm in, that I might ask somebody to do something, not necessarily in the delegation of a task, but usually like sort of an invitation. Would you like to write something? Would you like to contribute something? And people, I think when they hear an offer like that, want to say, yes, 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 of course I will. And what I would like is that sometimes they actually say no to me. Now, this possibly sounds a bit counterintuitive because it's lovely when people say yes. And I think there's an element where they genuinely in that moment want to contribute an offer. But what frustrates me is it seems they don't have the ability to necessarily think, now, do I really want to do this? Um, do I have the time to do this? Am I really committed to doing this? And I'm the kind of person that when somebody says yes, I kind of almost hold it a little bit like they've made a promise to me, a, a kind of commitment to me. And then that my job becomes about, you know, waiting for it. And if it doesn't come, then I have to chase almost like I've become the parent in the relationship or the boss in the relationship that needs to hold them accountable to what's going on. And I would just love it if people went, nah, thanks for the offer, Helen, but no. But they don't. They say yes. So what, what, what could I do in a situation like that? That's a very tricky one. People don't want to let other people down. Saying no is hard. We all know that. Just as you said, we tend to overcome it in the heat of the moment when we are excited. And we also tend to underestimate what we can achieve in a given time frame. The first thing that I would do when I, I would hope that somebody could contribute to a project we are working on is ask open-ended questions rather than asking, can you complete X, Y, Z by the end of the next two weeks? I would say, how long will it take for you to complete this piece of work or what will you be able to complete in the next couple of weeks? And then you will know whether it fits with what you need or it doesn't fit. Then it's easier to bring the conversation to the conclusion that maybe that's not going to happen. Now, if they say yes, there is still a couple of options you can do. Ask them what is needed for them. Make sure that they are very clear about the benefit that they get from doing this work for you apart from just helping you out. If they are clear on the benefit, they will more likely be able to tap into that headspace of enthusiasm in the coming days, when they will actually feel motivated to sit down and, and get the work done. Other thing I would do is to write on the spot when they said yes, create a quick action plan, what step one, step two, step three, and agree in a timeline, make sure that every single step is really small, and if you can complete that first step right on the spot together, or you can ask a person to do it within the same day of your conversation, that will help. Let me give you a quick example. I was asked to prepare 
personal development presentation to a real estate agency. And that happened two weeks ago. It made me a little bit anxious, make sure that I will really get it right. And the person who invited me to do this presentation first sat down with me. We had a Zoom chat about the broad scope of the presentation. He suggested that in one week we meet again and I will give him a little bit more detailed outline of the content and then we will talk that through. And then a week after he asked me to send him the title of the session and the key points that he will send out in an email to the database. The following week, we had a dry run. By that time, the content had to be 80% there. And then a week after that was a final presentation. And I have to make it clear, there was no way that I would have not meet this deadline. But this step-by-step -step process made it so much easier and more comfortable for me to get there in a pace that's healthy. I didn't feel overwhelmed. I felt excited about that project and I'm very pleased with how it went. Which may come back to a personality aspect because if somebody had asked me to do something and I said yes, and they were giving me that kind of step-by-step, -step, I would probably go, what? Don't you think I'm responsible? You know, do you think you need to spell this out for me? I'm okay. You know, just let me know what deadline you need it by and I'll take care of it. Trust me, I'll be good. Well, that can be difficult, you know, to respond to. But if you have phrased it in a way that I will need the key outline in next week for promotional purposes, it's quite hard to argue. But it also comes down to trust in work relationships and feeling comfortable with each other and that's a huge topic yeah and and, and I, I can't even claim that I, I'm an expert on, on this subject I, I'm certainly not but there are certain elements of building trusting relationships that I know about and that aspect which is my book is about is when where and how we work and the way you develop your relationships with people where you meet how you meet can make a massive difference to your work relationships and also to where the conversation goes. And let me share another example here that I've heard from a lawyer, one of my clients who, who talked about meeting clients for the first time. And this particular lawyer found it very important that their clients see her as a trusted advisor rather than an authority figure sitting on a high horse. And she realized that if she meets her client in a lounge room with comfortable furniture and artworks around and, you know, a cup of warm drinks, the conversation will go more in a friendly way. And that guides the rest of the work relationship. This is set a direction for that. It's completely different when you meet your client in a stark equity boardroom. You will notice that trust will evolve differently. You will, the level of comfort you feel in each other's company will evolve differently. You want to get to a point ideally when you work with somebody and they won't feel comfortable saying no to you, that your relationship is very honest. It's very authentic. And you don't have to hide. You don't have to avoid touchy topics. You don't have to avoid discomfort. I think that's a powerful insight that when you're in a situation, consider 
you know, the timing, was it that you gave person a short amount of time to kind of consider this or that you were both rushing or jumping off a tram? So, you know, when you do it and how you do it and where you do it could make a very different sense of whether somebody felt comfortable to actually say no to you or felt that they had the bit of the time to kind of slow down and consider what was going on rather than feeling that they were rushed to a decision. Absolutely. And I would also add that everything that has been leading up to that point, the history of your work life, that makes a difference too. Mm. Something that comes through with all of these things for me and, and the book is there's a core element of personal self-awareness. And while you said it doesn't have personality tests or things like that, I think as a person is reading any of the advice, there's a consideration of who am I and does this fit with what I'm or resonate with where I'm at right now or what's important to me rather than thinking, oh, somebody else has got the truth in the world and I need to take that on, whereas it might feel uncomfortable for me. And I think there's part of that self-awareness is, is this discomfort and this is a wrong choice and I should back away from it or this is an unfamiliar choice and maybe I explore or experiment and try it out because this could be a place of growth where I could try something different. Uh, it's so true and this whole book uh, has been motivated by the joy of doing work that's meaningful, a joy of doing the work that makes a difference and makes you grow and makes you feel fulfilled and perhaps makes you surprise yourself by what you can achieve. This uh, book hasn't been motivated by, you know, the being under pressure and and working in an environment where certain superiors perhaps want to suck the juices out of us and how to deal with that. That's not my intention, but turning it again around, if we know how to find those moments in our work life, then everything feels easy and rewarding and meaningful. Not everything will feel meaningful, but having many moments that feel meaningful that will make it much easier also for us to work with all that aspect of work that's painful, that's stressful, that's annoying, that seems meaningless. Maybe we can never fully escape that aspect of work. Interesting, there is some research which shows that if only 20% of your work time feels meaningful, you have a positive relationship with your work overall. So yes, my main goal is to help people have more and more moments, moments of truth when everything is together. And there's a ripple effect. It will impact our entire work life. It will impact our personal life as well. And we have so many choices. And this is actually closes the idea because again, you asked me at the beginning what motivated for me to write this book. We have enormous amount of choices in life and it's only growing. We want to make sure it, it's freedom, but it's only through freedom when we have the self-awareness and we have the knowledge to make the right choices. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for sharing. And I will be sure to put the link to the book where people can buy it for themselves too. Thank you, Helen. I enjoyed it very much. Too. Workscapes are changing everywhere. For more goodness to change your workscape, visit www.beselfunlimited.com 